to another Dishcast. This is me, as usual, Andy Sullivan, and here we're having another discussion of foreign policy as the United States confronts a whole new world, a aggressive Russia, seemingly, and a rising China, the aftereffects of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, a whole range of subjects to talk through. And I'm here with Edward Litvak, whom I met 30 years ago. I used to edit him a little bit at the New Republic, and I've never read a piece of his without being stimulated in some way, sometimes in the positive, sometimes in the negative. But you really are unclear about what he's trying to say, which is, uh, to my mind, a rather high compliment. He's a military strategist, historian, and consultant in the quote-unquote grand strategy school of geopolitics, who has advised many presidents and prime ministers. He's the author of almost two dozen books, including the, the extraordinarily uh, controversial and influential coup d'etat, a practical handbook, and the grand strategy of the Roman Empire, and most recently, The Rise of China versus the Logic of Strategy. Edward, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Here we have in front of me one of the great theorists of grand strategy. But before we get there, let me ask you some things which I ask everyone. You've had an extraordinary life. Uh, tell us how, in your words, your childhood was and what your formative influences were when you were a kid and growing up. Until you, until you really came into your prime? Well, um, you know, things, events happened. I was born in, in, uh, trans, in Banat, uh, which is part of Romania, but culturally might as well be in the very center of Europe. German speaking rather than Hungarian speaking or Romanian speaking, that sort of thing. And my, my parents, the Banat was, was fortunate for Jews. Nothing happened, partly because people were very enterprising including my, my father. Nothing happened whatsoever during the war. There was the only province between the Atlantic Ocean and the Ural Mountains where uh, nothing happened because it was prevented from happening, not because of accident. And then communism, just a few days before the communist takeover, my father was inspired to leave Romania, as he was, and moved to Italy, where he was further inspired to move to Sicily, calculating that since he had three small children, didn't speak the language, had no Italian qualifications, he figured we'd become very rich very quickly, <laughs> which he did, which he did in Palermo. So I was brought up in Palermo, but as the unfortunate side effect of my father's success is that we had to move from Palermo to Milano because he had been flying back and forth with three motors, you know, pre-war three motors. People these days fly commute, you know, by air, but that's 1950, right? Uh, so we had to move from wonderful Palermo, where I was uh, super happy, to the horrible city of Milano. I got kicked out of two schools, so I had to be sent to boarding school in England, because in, in England, boarding schools, for a kid, uh, for a small child to take care of himself, as they call it, instead of running, crying to the teachers, that was considered admirable. In the Italian school, that was called violent. And I was actually expelled because I took care of myself when they made fun of my Sicilian accent. Where, uh, so, which school in England, Edward? Where, which... Carmel College. Carmel College, which is a boarding school, a Jewish boarding school on the Thames, very big on rowing, very big on all the sports and cricket and all that, but also 
Jewish, Jewish, you know, actually Jewish. It was headed by a fellow called Kopel Rosen, who was a kind of athletic, seven, you know, six and a half foot tall rabbi, and he liked sports and so. So it was a good place. I joined the Cadet Corps because in those days, Britain still had compulsory military service. Cadet Corps, you start at 13. My dad did the same Your thing. Dad. Yeah. Both yeah. At the same time. Yeah, right. Cadet Corps, this was the light infantry. And it was done pretty seriously, you know, from the age of 16. Uh, you start at 13 or whatever, but it, you actually got military training. I actually got the full basic training. If I joined the British Army, I wouldn't have had to do one day of basic training. So it was serious stuff. And then uh, I went to London School of Economics because it was located in London where there was a regiment that I could be affiliated with as a territorial, in effect. And then London School of Economics, I got a job at the then brand new University of Bath and actually helped to start its economics department, which through no achievement of my own, is now rated as the best in the country or was a couple of years ago. So they gave me an honorary degree, which I don't deserve because we were just starting out in those ancient days. And, and then I, I became an oil consultant because I, I was on a flight and I started talking to somebody. It turns out to run a big oil consulting firm in London. So I ended up in the corner office in Wardour Street, you know, at the ripe old age of 23, advising, you know, the National Iranian Oil Company, the Algerian Oil Company, and Shell and stuff. So that's how I got the material for coup d'etat, because I was following the politics of the Middle East from the perspective of the impact it would have on oil concessions and oil taxation and stuff. And so I was deeply immersed in it. I knew all the protagonists, and I wrote coup d'etat on that basis. In other words, I wrote a book about coup d'etat based on the accounts of the successful perpetrators of coups and the unsuccessful ones who were hanging around and talking to people. So so I had everything, a series of accidents. And then in 1967, I left London and the glories of, you know, living in London and went to Israel because as as an analyst, I figured there's going to be a war. So I went there and there was a war in June 1967. I had the opportunity to, to use the skills I'd learned in the British Army. And it was great fun. And I wanted to stay in the infantry, but I was uh, more or less kidnapped into Israeli military intelligence, which was in the business of doing what is called analysis. This is not spies or something like that. It's not the Mossad, this military intelligence, setting up offices and working. I was doing that very happily. And then I ran into a couple of professors from Johns Hopkins who sort of accompanied a remark, passing remark to my own wife, saying, you employ all these PhDs in doing intelligence research, then you don't have a PhD, and these guys came from Johns Hopkins, two professors, well-known at the time, at Oliver, it was very famous fellows, uh, Tucker, and, uh, and so on, and they invited me, I accepted, I, and I got a doctorate, and in the middle of that, my elder brother managed to bankrupt the very solid family farm, <laughs> which my father set up, which had owned various factories, had no debt. And so I had to work as the, the only employer I could find was the Pentagon, because I was on a student visa, so I couldn't wash dishes in the restaurant right. legally. Right. And the only, and by American law, the only people, not even the CIA, the only 
entity that can offer a job to a, a person without a, a labor permit was the Pentagon. Really? So I went to work in the Pentagon, and as it happens in the office of the Secretary of Defense, while not being a U.S. citizen, not having security clearance, I was working next to the Secretary of Defense. <laughs> and that caused a lot of alarm and complaints, but it did happen. Which Secretary of Defense was that? James R. Schlesinger. Of course. Who was himself a strategic analyst, came come out of RAND, had been head of CIA, was himself analytical. So he hires me off the streets. And that was later legalized because I became a U.S. citizen by act of Congress. But that was two years later. So in other words, a life uh, of series of accidents. You know, I didn't start the Second World War. I didn't, you know, uh, Stalin uh, <laughs> not responsible for the co- turning Romania into a communist country, very particularly inappropriate. And all of these were a series of accidents. And the accidents have continued. I mean. I ended up being in China just before Mao died. I went to a funeral. So I became, suddenly in 1976, I became interested in China, to which I proceeded to visit very, very often. And, you know, so, as I say, accidents, which continue, I'm happy to say. Now, I just, you were just in Bolivia. Can you yes, give us well, your, your... I went to Bolivia a long time ago. I, I started, I got interested in the region because I was Alberto Fujimori's advisor on developing a method to go after this. This was practical stuff. It was on the ground. It had to do with moving around at night in trucks and shooting and so on. But I became interested in the area. And so I wanted to to be a, find a place where I could my wife could visit and so on because there was a war going on. And I ended up uh, going to Bolivia. Bolivia discovered the Amazon. Was somebody, actually a friend of mine, uh, organized a trip into the Amazon for my wife and myself by canoe from the 15,000 feet mountain pass of the Andes, descending all the way to the flat. So this was a great thing. You know, my wife was already on the verge of being a grandmother, but she is kind of courageous. And so I ended up in Bolivia and I became fascinated by ranching, started a ranch, which still continues, raising cattle only. And it's not uh, like animal husbandry. You don't milk them, you don't touch them. They just, they just, the herd grows, periodically you take out the steer and you sell it. That's the deal. And you have to change the bulls because cows get pregnant at two years old. So I ended up, again, it was a side effect. It was a trip, it becomes a ranch, a ranching and so on. I'm not a a planner. But the constant since 1976 is a focus on China and Russia. Russia is another country I visited, and for different reasons, I had many connections there. I happened to have met Putin when he was Sobchak's deputy for international affairs in, in Leningrad. So I met him when he was still Leningrad, and he always invites me to these presidential conferences. I don't go to all of them, but I've gone to quite a few. And I'm interested in Russia and some and uh, Putin and so. So Ch- Russia and China accidentally, you know, become the focus before they became a duetto facing the United States, as is now the case. One of the things that's remarkable about you, which makes you different from most members of what is now called the Blob in Washington, of foreign policy analysts, is that you run a ranch. You've gone down a river in the Amazon. You, you've lived in different countries. You're, you're just not a formulaic Washington insider. That's, 
that's uh, but I want to ask you what was your first well, impression I'm not, I'm not and in fact I, I've never been able to maneuver myself or try to in any position my involvement is that I get you know I get called given contracts to study situations and advice that's how it works and I'm, I'm very passive in that regard so tell us in your view, since the end, let's go back to the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, because that's, that's a, a, a relatively good marker for a changing foreign policy for the United States. What, is you, in your views, have been the biggest errors the West has made in its relationship with Russia first, and then in its relationship with China? Well, relationship with, with Russia, I'm tempted to say that that I was one of the 50 people who had repeated advertising. It was organized by Susan Eisenhower. Most of these people were much more qualified than I, former ambassadors to Moscow, distinguished statesmen of different kinds, who were opposed to NATO expansion. We were opposed to NATO expansion, not just to, not to hurt Russian sensibilities, as it were, but our focus was the fact that NATO was a true alliance. And the alliance were, let's say, when there was a pressure against the Norwegians, they would promptly arrive in American division, the Marine division, actually, to reinforce on a kind of exercise, but really, of course. When there was trouble somewhere else, could be Eastern Turkey, because in those days, Turkey was a true NATO ally, and the Russians could put pressure. There was a thing called ACE Mobile Force, which is the Central Command Mobile Force. There could be up to 30,000 soldiers that would arrive the next day. It was a true military alliance. And once you bring in countries that are indefensible, geographically, like Estonia, however worthy and nice people they might be, they're indefensible, then you turn a true military alliance into a sort of a, a kind of nice, or not a nice club, but you don't, it's not a military alliance. We thought that it was very important that NATO should be a true military alliance. When there's a threat, there is a response. Like, let's say that Ukraine were a member of NATO, which is not even now, but we're a member of NATO. Russian army meets. At that point, American, German, Dutch, Belgian, Italian, French troops arrive and stand there. And we uh, had this successive as it was ignored because NATO membership was handed out as a kind of encouragement and reward. Why? Because the European Union was much slower in accepting country since they had to shell out money to raise up standards. So since it costs money to the European Union to bring in these countries, why not just give them NATO membership as a nice thing? Like in the school, you give a winner's prize to every single kid, make him feel good. And we objected to it. it was, the 50 who signed the very we were of course ignored. NATO expansion continued. And along the way, the Russians participated and sent a big delegation to NATO. From one day to the other, they changed that delegation from a delegation that wants to integrate and turn NATO into an alliance that goes as far as the Chinese border, which would be very, very good thing to have today. Suddenly the Russian delegation changes. I know the people in charge there, and they decide to go there to try and extract as much information as they can with no intention of proceeding towards integration. That made sense because the Putin I met in Leningrad, who preached to me the importance of the rule of law, because his mentor was Professor Law Sovchak, who was 
talk about the fact that Russia has been cursed by the absence of the rule of law. All these different attempts to bring it always failed, including Peter the Great, by the way, trying to do it. This Putin has gone into a different mode. He sings the imperial song. He tells the Russians, you will never have good, elegant clothes like the French. You will never eat well like the Italians. You won't be solidly wealthy like the Swiss or maybe the Americans. But you have the great empire. You are the rulers of the greatest country in the world, which is the greatest empire in the world. And my predecessors lost big pieces of it through carelessness and foolishness. I shall not. And if possible, I will regain pieces. And by the way, he has developed a mode to do that, which is not desperado wars or extremist things. He waits until the right opportunity. That's how he got Abkhazia. Abkhazia is very small, but it is the southernmost part of what you would call Russia. Therefore, the oranges and lemons, and it gives a Mediterranean thing. It's important for the Russians that stay within Russia, you can have the Mediterranean kind of existence. Then Ossetia, even smaller, but important because Ossetia is Christian, and therefore improves the balance in the Caucasus between Muslims and Christians. Then the Crimea, which everybody knows is sentimental connections for the Russians, and which was arbitrarily transferred from Russia to, to Ukraine by Nikita Khrushchev, you know, as a kind of joke, in fact. <laughs> so he gets all this, but how does he get them? By waiting for the right fruit to fall into his hands. He leaves it to Zhirinovsky and these, you know, loudmouth extremists to call for action to take stuff. He waits for it to drop. And that is how he got Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan was very independent. They got an upheaval and they called the Russian troops. From that moment on, even the Russian troops were few and they left after two days. Until the day comes that Kazakh troops are called to Moscow, there is a suzerainty element established. And Ukraine, I have been tweeting nonstop that the Russians will not invade Ukraine because Putin's method is not to start desperado endless wars but to get through. And since around Ukraine, you don't have the 500,000 minimum army you need to take Ukraine in any meaningful way, but you have maybe 120,000 or chip in a few others or in the East and 180. That number is a number for an adventure. Putin is not an adventure. So what we have here is bottom line. The Russians are no good at anything except writing really good novels, actually, and <laughs> empire, empire, strategy. The Russians win their wars. They are a strategy. And our other friends, the Chinese, are good at everything except strategy. Everything uh, except strategy. That's why they were ruled by the foreign Yurchen until 1913. Uh, they pretended they were Chinese. The Chinese nationalists did, but they knew they were not. Before that, there was an interlude by a bandit, a Ming, very Chinese, Han Chinese bandit, where three of this desperately unstrategic culture of theirs, including Sun Tzu, the much praised Sun Tzu, Sun Chi, which is a book of tricks, not strategy at all. Before that, it was the Mongols. Before the Mongols, it was another Manchurian dynasty. Before that, et cetera, it was the Kitai, Turkic Kitais. The Russians to this day called China Kitaiska, land of the Kitai, not really? of the Chinese. Yeah. So, yes, Kitaiska is how you call Russia, uh, uh, China and Russia. 
It, it was because at the time they were ruled by the Kitai, who were in Turkic tribe. So the Chinese always fail a strategy, succeed in everything else. And indeed, if it wasn't for the Americans who bombed the Japanese in you know, Hiroshima, the Japanese into surrender, and indeed Stalin's victory or it would have been in Manchuria, to this day, there'll be a Japanese army. There'll still be a Japanese garrison in Beijing and Nanjing. The Chinese were entirely incapable of fighting the Japanese. The Japanese, with very small numbers, controlled not all of China, not Sichuan and so on, but much of it. So the Chinese are hopeless in strategy, and I will end by saying that now that America is weak by division, political division, weak, weak, you know, uh, power is mass multiplied cohesion, and there's no cohesion. In this moment, the Chinese, we need an alliance in the Pacific, and the Chinese have endowed us with an alliance by going around kicking the Japanese back into alliance. They were going neutral kicking the Indians from neutrality being on our side, the Vietnamese they didn't have to kick, they've always been there, and kicking the Filipinos back into an alliance that kicked us out from the Philippines with great joy, that to bring us back, and even the Indonesians who are loose now on our side. So And Australia too, right? Australia too. Australians were the first. Australians uh, may be very silly in many ways, but strategically, they were the first. They came out with a formal white paper in 2008 or something. The, the Chinese have given us an alliance because of their strategic incompetence, which is total. <laughs> and one of the subsidiary mysteries is why people like Kissinger go around falsifying the evidence to portray them as great strategists. Let me uh, go back. You know, Excuse me for yeah. one minute. We'll get back to this. But I want to get back to that moment uh, when the Russians decided and realized this NATO expansion is not friendly and we don't want it. When they shifted from understanding there might be some big integrative democratic alliance against China with Europe, when did they decide, nope, this is against our national interests, this is actually a threat to us, we will, we will, we will not accept this and we will slowly wait our time, bide our time, until we attempt to begin to reverse some of this? Well, I, I, I don't think actually it, was, it, it went like that. What happened is a process that, that was very mysterious at the time, but has been uncovered more recently, including by, I, I, I'm ashamed to, to say, the recent book about Putin and his friends, which delves into this, goes back to 1990 and something by the Financial Times, that woman who got sued and then not sued and so I'm trying to remember. It's okay. The story was obscure, but no longer is. It sort of has emerged. Story is that a gr- Putin, a group of people, the ones who moved Putin from Leningrad to Moscow, as it then was, you know, St. Petersburg or the caps, to Moscow, and made him president. This was the, the KGB bright people, the, the intelligent people in the old KGB, who decided that the Soviet Union might end, but the KGB does not. And the KGB would continue, and the KGB would recreate, not the Soviet Union, as close as possible to the Soviet Union. So there is Putin who comes in, and he's president, whose who's only important statement is that the fall of the Soviet Union was a great tragedy, and that we're going to reconstitute as much as possible, that means we cannot cooperate with NATO, we cannot cooperate with the European Union, 
because in order to impose on the Russian people the sacrifice that is required to create a national security empire kind of thing, we, we must generate hostility. We must be able to tell Russians that they are conspiring against you. The West hates you. The West despises you and conspires against you. And the conspiracy is very extensive. For example, you didn't know this, uh, but I, I, can, I can cite you the Russian sources that the Americans built 23 biological research laboratories around Russia in order to investigate ways of differentially attacking Russian genes. In other words, there are these biological re research laboratories, not for something simple like developing germs to kill Russians. No, it's to do something sophisticated to do down the Russian people through this biological research. There's a whole literature uh, which generated and floats into these uh, imp uh, important online uh, magazines that carry the messages and so on. So it's not anything NATO did. It is a group of people take over in Moscow and say, no, we're not going to go the democratic way. We're not going to have free market and free politics in this country. We are not going to do that. We're going to rebuild a Russian national security state. And the protagonists are, they're found, they are the ones who made Putin the obscure number two official. When I first met Putin, and one of his virtues is that he never forgets people who helped him. I used to take him out to dinner because he had no foreign currency. And the only two decent restaurants in his city were the Pulkoskaya and the Prevaltiska, owned by Finns, Finnish companies, and they would not give you anything for rubles, only hard currency. So I used to invite him out. He never forgot that. They never forgot that. And he was a guy. He was a poor guy. He was a very poor guy, you know. And he was lifted out of there brought to Moscow by clever people, and I can mention names like Patrushev, who is now a national security advisor. So these people found him, brought him out, and they, they believed that he was the right man to do what he did, and they were right. It's like, you know, a company in trouble finds some obscure person, and he turns the company around. That's what happened. How did they find Nothing him, and what did you talk about when you, when you had those dinners? What, what were the discussions about? Well, listen, I was in there for its purpose. I was hired by a person who a couple of, three months later, hanged himself in a prison in Milano, Italy, who was the head of AGI, which is the biggest company in the country, oil and gas, now more subsumed by any internationally, either Carburi, which is the, the largest company, oil and gas. He was the head of it. He commissioned me to go there and to hand over the gift from the Italians or from them, actually, oil and gas people, right? Of the copy of the Bocconi Business School in Milano, the famous Bocconi Business School in Milano, they were going to get a copy that's called the Leningrad Business School. And I was brought in for the door opening negotiations because I, I've been running around Russia for a long time. I knew friends in Russia and I liked the Russians. I still like the Russians very much. And, and indeed, it was a wonderful trip and everything went very well and so on and so forth. And I'm ashamed to say, I don't actually remember what happened, if there was a business school or not. But it was overtaken by dramatic events because in Italy, there was Tangentopoli, which was the 
the magistrates rising to the power from which they have never been demoted, of attacking any and all politicians, shoving them in prison. They put the head of Ajib in prison on suspicion of corruption, no evidence, and he had no prospect of ever getting out, so he hanged himself. So these dramatic events overshadowed uh, the experience. So when you look at Putin's leadership of Russia, what grade would you give him for the last 25 years? An A? As, as an imperial statesman, he has to get 10 out of 10 because he did this rebuilding and reconstruction without uh, war. And the only fighting there was with Chechnya war, and he couldn't take the casualties, of course, and so withdrew and handed over Chechnya to the Chechen bandit and kleptocrat and oppressor Kadyrov, who runs it on contract for the Russians. So as an imperial statesman, 100%. As a ruler that maximizes the talents of the Russian people, very low, very low. In fact, the, the, the mere fact that Russia depends for its GDP, for its economy, on oil and gas, as if it was a sheikdom, as if it was, you know, Abu Bubi or Bubu Chuchi, is because the, the brains, education, enterprise of the Russian people are completely suppressed by a kleptocratic system. A complete platform. You want to start a company, uh, a company making shirts, the tax collectors descend on you. And they tried, they, in, in other words, Russia would benefit a lot from having Italian technical advice provided by the mafia in Sicily to teach them how to take the money without crushing the enterprise. Because <laughs> they crush the enterprise. They don't know what is the proper take. Right. They, and when you try and complain, and let's say that substantially you have a relative who knows how to get to Putin, they say it's a waste of time because he's the head of the system. So Putin is the emperor. He's the head of the system. But not a really successful gangster internally, you're saying? Not in terms no, of... no. It is, he is a, the kleptocratic system is the reason why the Russian people depend on oil and gas. I mean, give you a, a simple example. Israelis have found huge amounts of gas, or rather an enterprising Bible-reading Americans who showed up <laughs> found huge amounts of gas. This gas is a lot of gas Israel has, and it's flowing, and the pipes have been built, and it's being sold to Jordan and Egypt of all places. Egyptian gas will arrive, but not yet. Yet, the role of gas in the Israeli economy is tiny, 2%. Why? Because in, in a proper country, the, the, the wealth is generated by the talent of the people. So the Israelis have a thousand, a thousand internet companies that do everything and, and, and every other damn thing, and the oil and gas are insignificant. Given the number, and the Russians are the largest European people, the largest European people, and given their size and their talents and energies, oil and gas should account for 2% of the Russian GDP. And the Moscow government should be indifferent to oil and gas. Instead, it's central. Why? Because kleptocracy strangles everything else. Absolutely everything. So let's compare Putin's government of Russia with the Communist Party in China. Roughly the since Communist the, Party of China. In China, right. yes. Now, you, you had two ways of looking at Putin. One was as a strategist. 
and the other was as a sort of ruler able to harness the abilities of his people. How would you grade the, no, I think you've already said, as far as you're concerned, the Chinese are bloody useless at strategy, that they have they've created, they've created an alliance, which we didn't even have to do with respect to their, their neighbors right. in the Pacific. But yeah. obviously, they're yeah. much more successful internally. Their economy is, is compared to Russia, a right. completely different. Yeah. Well, first of all, first of all, their, their management of their foreign exchange assets, their central banking, macroeconomic policy are all strictly, strictly American schools. Uh, in fact, the I, I think the head of the foreign exchange thing became the financial director of the California uh, Pension Fund, which is the largest pension fund in America. And back and forth, I mean, interchangeable. So what they what they what they do in regard to central banking is Federal Reserve mentality and American style. Macroeconomics is American. Everything else is American, and is done. Uh, with a lot of discipline and quite well. Then there is the question of relationship between central government and private companies. And first, it was a relationship of restrictions. Deng Xiaoping and these people four years ago had to work to, to against the restrictions. It was very difficult. They had to struggle to, to, to free up the market in China. That was phase one. In phase two, there was a period when Beijing thought that it would use its powerful new companies as a kind of light cavalry to conquer industries that would then have strategic significance. So early Xi Jinping, you keep hearing things like artificial intelligence conquers the world. We're going to conquer artificial intelligence by further empowering our valiant warriors, Alibaba and Tencent and Duduo and Baidu and all the other companies which have emerged in Russia, in China because their competitors were strangled. Google is blocked, and Baidu becomes the Google. You block Amazon, so Alibaba can do it. That's what they did. Now, they said, we're going to use these companies to conquer artificial intelligence, with which we'll conquer the world. Then what happens is that Xi Jinping's dictatorship evolves. He's not happy to be a primus inter pares like Hu Jintao. Hu Jintao was number one. He was president. He was head of the Central Military Commission, which is the real source of power, and the general secretary of the party. But he was primus into Paris. When he was photographed next to other political members that he was talking, they were talking back and forth and so on. His prime minister, Wen Jiabao, the very nice, modest, humble guy with a wife who is a billionaire, Wen Jiabao, also, Hu Jintao would sit next to Wen Jiabao and like two pals. Now there's Xi Jinping. He sits in a high chair. The other uh, people sit below, like children in small little, in front of little desks and so on. At, at even the standing committee Politburo meetings, uh, they are filmed on CCTV and you see them studiously reading Xi Jinping's latest um, edict while he speaks and they say nothing. Nobody even says, hello, they are silent, okay? This fellow couldn't tolerate Alibaba, couldn't tolerate these people. You know, if you go on YouTube, you can see Jack Ma, the head of Alibaba, 
all, uh, doing a, a big company event and there are 20,000 people and he's dressed as a girl playing a saxophone or something. And they clearly worship him, worship him, okay? And Xi Jinping's jealousy, I couldn't tolerate that. So Alibaba had to be, I mean, Jack Ma had to be taken down. And these companies that were supposed to be the valiant horsemen of the Chinese conquest of artificial intelligence are now subdued, demoralized, and weakened because the first priority is to retain complete control for Xi Jinping, who has absorbed the party within himself. He makes all the decisions. Nobody else can say a word. The standing committee people don't say a word. The let alone the central committee has become a one-man guy, one-man dictatorship, who rules by the Hitlerian method. He has Hitler's method. The method is that he makes speeches saying we should do this, we should do that. And then ambitious generals volunteer plans or even take initiatives. And if they've interpreted correctly the great man, then he approves of it. That's how the Indians got clobbered on June 2020 with 30 Indians killed, the Lieutenant Colonel and the soldiers of the Bihar Regiment trained for high altitude because the general in the Western Theater Command thought he would get Xi Jinping's approval. That's how they do it. Did he get Xi Jinping's approval for that incursion into India? He did. He did very much so. He got promoted. He was a three-star, became a four-star. Uh, unfortunately, so that to replace it. Where do you trace Jinping's, uh, Xi Jinping's evolution into essentially a, a tyrant figure, an insecure, uh, and, controlling right. tyrant figure? What time? Well, when did, did was he always that way? Was it always his goal, or was there something no, that I, evolved? I think he, uh, uh, my guess. Look, back when he emerged, two thousand and twelve, he was supposed to emerge as primus inter pares. Right. Because there was the very powerful party boss of Chongqing, Boxi Lai, who had taken a lot of initiatives like uh, changing the city of Chongqing with Blanketing, having leading choruses to sing Mao era songs, all kinds of initiatives of his own. In those ancient days, when Hu Jintao was famous in Paris, the different party leaders were competing with initiatives and things, and each of them had, there was a leader in, like Boxi Lai, and then there was and so on. And he himself, Hu Jintao, had his, his number two, Li Zhuan, and so on, who was a very powerful guy. There were many powerful people in China. Xi Jinping, however, had been chosen to be the successor of Hu Jintao back in 2007, five years before. When Hu Jintao got his second term, Xi Jinping was chosen to be his successor. As the son of famous great party leader who had fallen under Mao, but then restored after Mao. And he was the chosen guy. Rice, when the date arrives for his takeover, he refuses to take over. And he says, unless I want Boxy Lai wiped out, I want Hu Jintao's people wiped out, and I want the Zhujiang uh, Khan, who was the member at the top of the standing committee who was in charge of security, really, and controlled the police and everything else, he has to go, everybody has to go, uh, otherwise, I go on strike. In fact, there was this period when he disappeared just before he was supposed to take over. He refused to meet visiting foreign dignitaries. And what happened is that the party, he won because Boxy Lai had the scandal with the murder of Haywood. Boxy, he was, Xi Jinping 
is it will get lucky because his one rival, Boxilai, falls because his wife happens to murder this Mr. Hayward and gets caught because in a very embarrassing way, there was the flight of a security chief to the American consulate in Chengdu. And the other fellow, because his son is driving a Ferrari with at least one girl, possibly two, possibly in a state of undress, crash in a, into, a, into a highway, a very high speed with a Ferrari. And the question is, how come the son of Bujit Tao's deputy has a Ferrari? Okay. But in the, so, so Xi Jinping says corruption, corruption. I'm to go after corruption. And under, under corruption, he eliminates all his political enemies. Okay, so in other words, it started at the beginning, and then he starts moving and does a tremendous, tremendous, enormously damaging thing. First, he revokes the nationalities policy, which was Stalin's nationalities policy, national informed, communist in content, content communist, national informed. For that form, we sustain the identities of the nationalities. We have schools to teach the language. We have we start journals and magazines for some nationalities. They didn't have literacy. They were provided with an alphabet. If if you were a traditional musician in Kazakhstan playing the famous um, songs, there was a the house of culture that, that would pay for you to do your instruments. If if there was a traditional maker of instruments, he would. In other words, that he Xi Jinping abruptly reverses that. Tells the Uyghur you have to become Chinese. Your children must not speak Uyghur. They must become Chinese. He starts demolishing the Tibetan culture by getting these herds, forcing herdsmen to abandon the herds, become industrial workers that might be sent in other parts of China. And revokes Mongol education. The Inner Mongolia had schools in Mongol that taught uh, subjects in Mongol. He from one day to the other. All Mongol teachers can only the ones teaching Mongolian language can stay. All the others fired, and they must teach in Chinese. In other words, he does this the suppression of the nationalities. The Uyghur, the famous Uyghur story, is a derivative of that. Right. Um, and in a side issue, really, because the old problem flattened everybody. And all the time, he elevates Mao. Mao, he elevates Mao. So there have been plenty of Maoists. There were French filmmakers who were Maoists. I have a friend in, in, in Italy who was a famous sinologist who was a Maoist. But in, in Xi Jinping is the only one who was not allowed to be a Maoist, who must not be a Maoist. His Maoism is perverse because he was living a happy life as the son of the person who was in effect the publisher of the party. He was nominally John Lyon's deputy, but he was in charge of books and publication. He lived in a beautiful house in the Jungdang High, in the heart of Beijing, with part, you know, water, little pools of water and gardens, in a kind of mansion where he grew up. So at the age of 13, he gets tossed out, kicked out, and sent to a miserable village in one of the ugliest places I've ever seen in China, kind of barren, remote for a village, he gets thrown out. His father is sent to prison, in and out of prison, detention, remote factory work for 18 years. Abruptly, his mother is publicly humiliated uh, by having to walk alongside the husband and saying, capitalist road, they're a pig. And 
uh, then his father was exposed, Hu Jintao, with a, a placard saying that he was a traitor himself. And his half-sister, Mao, sent his half-sister to die of hunger. And the other half-sister, the one who's now a billionaire, uh, the billionaire half-sister of Xi Jinping, she survived only because she ended up in Inner Mongolia. And in Inner Mongolia, there was a party leader known as the King of Mongolia who resisted the Red Guards. She did, was not, she was still having to make bricks with the bare hands for several years. But because of that party leader, she got some extra food. So she didn't die of hunger. So the person who sent his father to prison, humiliated his mother savagely, I would say savagely, killed his half sister, almost tried to kill his sister. This person is the person he worships. It's Faust. This is pure Faust. It's Faust, the man who makes the pact with the devil. Dr. Faust, who knows the devil is the devil, makes the pact. And it's symptomatic because Faust is a book that Xi Jinping is totally obsessed with. When he met Merkel, he claimed, and he wasn't lying, that he knows it by heart. Because when he was exiled to the horrible place, horrible, miserable, poor and cold, but also horrible, he had one book with him, which was uh, Goethe's book, you know, The Sorrows of Young Werther. He then switched it with another exile who had the facts, translated by a notorious character whom I actually met, called Guo Muro, who was himself Faustian because he is the one who was restored to high position after denouncing his own two sons who were duly murdered by the Red Guards. He denounced his two sons. So he's a Faustian character, very perverse, very perverse. Yes. How do you account for that? I mean, is it is it psychological? I guess you can't read someone's mind or psyche, but to to reenact in some ways the things that were brutally done to your own family. Okay. Right. All I can tell you is, first of all, I will not try to do that. I have no use for psychoanalysis in politics, and it may all be irrelevant because the strategic the fundamental strategic errors that Xi Jinping does don't derive from any of this. This is very traditional Chinese, not to, to be autistic about the outside world. Mm -hmm. Autistic, right? Not knowing. When the British showed up in Canton, the Chinese had, the British been around in the region for a hundred years, but the Chinese were autistic and said they were completely unprepared for what happened in the bombardment and so on. So all I can tell you is that Xi Jinping's obsessions go very deep. For example, Goethe. Goethe, as you know, uh, wrote more, 10 times more than Shakespeare because he wrote memoranda in addition to poems, books, and so on. He was a government official, wrote a lot of essays on a lot of things. There's no complete Goethe in English. There's no complete Goethe in French. There is in Chinese <laughs> because his obsession with Faust is such that Xi Jinping ordered the Shanghai University of Foreign Languages to mobilize all 83 known Chinese uh, Germanists, Germanists to translate all of Goethe into Chinese in 81 <laughs> giant volumes, giant volumes. Have you written? So a, he, have you written a one essay about Faust and Xi, Xi Jinping? Because I did, I did. Okay. In one of your books, it's okay. called Goethe in China. Okay, well, we'll I wrote the book in one of your books. I believe it's free online or something. We will, we will track it down. Goethe so in China, which records these simple facts. We will, we will track it down. That, yeah, yeah. And now there is, of course, new translations of that. 
but the man's obsessions go deep. For example, his nationality, revoking the nationalities policy that recognized national identities, national culture. And by the way, the Muslim story is only a derivative. He suppresses Islam in Xinjiang only because he wants to turn the Uyghur into Chinese. You know, Chinese with different faces. But Han, they will never be Han Chinese, right? Which is the only right thing. No, there will be Han Chinese because he doesn't want them to learn. He wants the children to study, only learn to speak uh, Mandarin. And they, then will there be Mandarin speakers with a Mandarin education, nothing Turkic, nothing Central Asian, just that. And as far as I know, he's not a German type, a Nazi type genetic racist. So a Uyghur who doesn't know anything but, but Mandarin is a Chinese. So what is the best way to handle Xi Jinping? Or is it just to sit back and let him make his own mistakes? No, it's to, take, it's to simply uh, follow him and do the right thing. Like, for example, he kicked the Indians out from a very determined effort to be neutral and forced them into, into an alliance with the United States against him. An alliance which is only reinforced by the fact that the Russians continue to be India's suppliers of the most advanced equipment. So Putin and Xi Jinping kiss and hug. But it is therefore no doubt mere coincidence that the principal supplier of the only country that fights China, Vietnam, is Russia. And the other country, India, is Russia. Russia supplies Vietnam and India the only two countries that actually fight China. But Xi Jinping and Putin kiss and, and so on for the cameras. And occasionally there's some Western commentators and journalists who are foolish enough to believe that this is a strategic alliance. It's not, you know, different thing. Does that give uh, the West a so, chance to does that give the West a chance to maybe support Putin against Xi Jinping? Should the Russians No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Look, impossible. Before 1914, the Tsar was much more comfortable with the German emperor and the Habsburg emperor than he could be with the French Republic or the British uh, democracy. However, he was forced to fight for the French Republic and the British democracy against the emperors who were his cousins and brothers and so on. In World War II, uh, Stalin really was determined to make a pact with Hitler so that he would get, for example, the Western Ukraine that they still have. The Western Ukraine, Putin claims the Ukraine, including Western Ukraine, that only was never ever ruled by Russians other than when Hitler gave it to them in 1940. So Stalin wanted to have an alliance with Hitler. He hated Churchill with a vengeance. Churchill had been the interventionist back in 1920. He was forced to fight for Churchill against the Germans. So similarly, the Russians know very well that at the end of the road, if the Americans drop the ball or keep dropping the ball and disintegrate or whatever, the Russians will be forced to make an alliance with Japan, with the United States, with Europe against the Chinese. They know that is their destiny to always have to uh, fight for their enemies against their friends. You know, Stalin was forced to go with with uh, Churchill, and they know if you know because. Strategy is much stronger than politics. 
you know, remember back in 69 when America was in real trouble, then in 69, I'm, I'm wrong, in 62. See, memory goes completely. Nixon goes to, and embraces Mao Zedong. Nixon embraces Mao Zedong at the moment of maximum weakness of the United States. Because, uh, you know, post-Vietnam, actually 1972 it was, of course, and in, in, in a Vietnam situation, embraces uh, Strategy is stronger than politics. The Indians wanted to be neutral, but the Indian politics are for neutrality, but strategy is stronger than politics. They're forced into the conflict. So when the United States from sort of the late 90s onwards actually attempted to help China, I mean, they obviously the entrance into WTO, the, 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 the most well, favored trade status. Say, say what? I was in China in order, because we were wanting to help the Chinese. At that time, there were 45 Soviet divisions poised facing Beijing and many more along the border. And my first visit to China is really, I'm an anti-tank expert, as it happens, because I was a kind of took part in the 73 war in Israel, which is the largest tank battle fought after World War II, involving 3,000 battle tanks, highly relevant. U.S. Army trade dog viewed me as a tank expert, wrote reports on tank warfare. And so there I'm in China helping the Chinese. But when I say helping the Chinese, I mean since since the collapse yeah, of the Soviet Union. Yeah, we were trying Union. to help them. And in fact, we gave, they, they, couldn't re- they could not start buying thousands of tanks, but it was came up with the idea of simply much more cheaply upgunning their existing tanks with a 105 millimeter and all that kind of stuff. We United States wanted a stronger China, much more than the Chinese, well, as much as the Chinese wanted. Then they wanted, eventually under Clinton, is a China contributing to global prosperity and solving a lot of problems in the United States. If you're going to have an economic restructuring in the United States, which happened with deregulation, and therefore you open up this turbo capitalism, as I call it, accelerated capitalism, you start having the gap between line workers in industry and the CEO going from 20 to 70 to 100 or whatever it is. In such a world, you need Walmart, you need cheap goods. And here is China ready to become the world's manufacturer of cheap goods. And with with cheap goods, stagnant wages look good. Right. You know, with ever cheaper goods. Uh, and so China is first as a necessity to deal with the Soviet Union. Then it's a necessity to provide the cheap goods for a society that is impoverishing a lot of people. You know, if you used to be an industrial worker at $40 an hour, now you're a security guard at $15 an hour, which was the American structural change, then you better have Walmart. So, uh, so, so, so can the United States, having bet on that kind of economic situation adjust? Are we going to start doing more insuring? Are we going to attempt to rebuild America's manufacturing base? I mean, clearly there was a moment, right, with China where really the shift, the big shift happens when Trump takes over. Is that not, is that, it took Trump Trump to actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. Trump made the big shift. And you will notice that Biden, who changed everything he could of Trump, didn't touch his China policy, which is intact completely intact. So the thing is that the Chinese have evolved, the United States has evolved, and strategy is stronger not only than politics, being stronger than politics is also stronger than economics. And therefore, there is insuring going on with 
when it was discovered that the United States no longer makes plastics and things like that because of the COVID necessities of what they call PPEs, personal protective equipment or something. Then there's the insuring of that. That prompted a review of the other industries that the United States must have in the United States. Then that happened. Then there was the Trump administration discovery, uh, a very bright fellow called Pottinger at the National Security Council. I had the honor of working with him very closely. And then a rather unlikely role as a technical expert, it's a bit of a joke. But the discovery that all microprocessors the Chinese were using in their Huawei phones and in their computers and in their missiles, all of them were derived from US technology because it was ARM Cambridge, England, but cross-licensed with the US or else it was US. Didn't matter what it was called. And then there was the blockage of that. Huawei, which had been boasting that it was over overtaking everybody is back to making phones only for children, etc. So we have to bring back masks and gowns. We have to bring back microprocessors. And now the list grows. Strategy is stronger than politics. And therefore the, the economics that moved manufacturing to the lower, you know, to China is being revoked. Let me um, ask you, what is your view, this is a, a moving on, of Brexit? What do you make of that decision by the United Kingdom to 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 leave the European Union? Was it a was it an unforced error? Is it something that was going to happen at some point? And what is your general view of the EU as as it has evolved in the last decade or two? Well, in the case, what the the British choices were, there are two choices. One choice is retain your identity. Be British or uh, be efficient. Being efficient and being British collided. You see, efficiency uh, is the guiding line of policy and politics and everything else. The only problem is that all the things that make life worth living are not efficient, such as living in the old family house, having your comfortable old shoes, listening to old songs and poems and so on. And everything that is make lives worth living is inefficient. But efficiency is the guideline for us to choose. So in the case of Brexit, Brexit attempts to show that Brexit were efficient were fairly pathetic attempts. <laughs> Brexit was inefficient and it was designed to preserve the things that efficiency is supposed to serve and to um, don't have further loss of identity because British identity have been diluted and losing it, reassert traditional British values, reassert British institutions, and make people in Britain feel that they are British and they're not just, let's say, and uh, who are you? I'm an electrical engineer. Where are you working? In Berlin. Why? Rents are lower and things like that. You know, there are, England was inhabited by people who were British and people for whom it was a convenient place to stay. The people for whom it's convenient to stay, for them, Brexit is very inconvenient because now when they arrive at the Paris airport, they have to queue up with the, you know, with the bongo bongo stuff <laughs> and things of that sort. But it was a, the identity people want. And that is how Brexit was won. And it was not their the misrepresentation of the exiters was that it would be efficient. It's not. Uh, but identity never is efficient. 
I mean, you know, the path of maximum efficiency is a path that leaves you with no family, no personality, no town, no village, no nationality. As you optimize, you know, you end up in Singapore, you know, married to a wife who doesn't really speak your language and without having a nationality, a language, a religion, or literature. That is what efficiency leads you to. So that was Brexit choice. Other countries solved the Brexit problem much more easily. I mean, uh, Swedish national identity resists all these immigrants very well. Finnish, Norwegian, and so on. And, uh, Britain is simply the larger, or the Italians, for example. I mean, Italy remains the only country where CEOs don't speak English. <laughs> Why? I'm Italian. <laughs> So and these countries, things matter, right? These... Identity is easy. In other countries, you know, people have to fight for it. In the United States, you might call what you've described as efficiency, what other people might call it as neoliberalism. And, and clearly, in some level, that has eroded national identity in the United States. It's eroded social cohesion in the United States. What do you think we could do? I mean, obviously, the United States is incredibly divided right now deeply at war with itself. How do we overcome that? Is that possible at this point? And to what extent do you think Trump was, I mean, you you didn't think he would be a terrible threat to the United States. You thought he would be assimilated into the system to some extent and that he wouldn't be that different. Have you had cause to change your mind about him? Well, look, the power of all, all human communities, all states, is mass multiplied cohesion. Mass is the people you have, the guns, the money, the gold mines, uh, whatever it is you have, geography. Multiplied cohesion. If you are utterly divided, the mass is irrelevant, you have no power, zero power. So Trump had a lot of sound ideas. One of them was to invest in vaccines, but nobody believed that, that you could do it in less than five or 10 years. Throwing money at it worked. His China policy saying, we're going to stop allowing them to steal and vacuum our technology and instituting policies, which slowly with some lot of resistance. I mean, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology believes it's an independent republic, which is allowed to transfer everything it wants, even US funded technology applauds Chinese-born professor who transfers US-funded technology to China and call it freedom of the South. But Trump did all these wonderful things. And what he also did was that he, instead of assuaging anxieties, reassuring the fearful, he went out of his way to provoke and to provoke, excite, and be extreme, pick quarrels he didn't have to do, as a manifestation of his personality. For him, the, the presidency was a stage where he could express himself. And he resisted even people who were very much on his side. In fact, his, one of his mentors, Bannon, resisted Bannon because Bannon wanted to exercise some discipline on this expression, which is saying something because Bannon himself is hardly very disciplined, but more than Trump. So Trump's self-indulgence of his own adolescent behavior caused, and then something happened which I did not expect, which is that the anti-Trumpians became unhinged, and they remain unhinged. When you, when 
on the gym, I watch the news programs when I on the machines, you know. And MSNBC is deranged. MSNBC, I mean, a nuclear attack could be taking place, and and MSNBC would discover that there's a Trump third cousin who doesn't like Trump, who but then interviewed for an hour. Now, what I didn't realize, I did realize that Trump's behavior was causing. Uh, was diminishing cohesion and dividing Americans. I did not expect that then they would become unhinged and therefore would multiply the division and then would take it into territory and then the then the, the Black Lives thing explodes for, for this, the, there's this career criminal Floyd who is murdered by a policeman with putting his foot on his neck until he dies, okay? The career criminal scaled is elevated into a saint, and in his name, a lot of standard. The Princeton University stops requiring Latin and Greek for applicants for the classics department in the name of diversity. Okay, and Brown University's classics department, I you know, Latin and Greek are my hobbies, so I follow this stuff. You know, I, I like to read Latin and Greek, I have a Latin and Greek library. Brown University's Classics department begins with a big statement saying that uh, and uh, they support uh, blacks or and Beyonce and so and uh, a member of the Brown Classics department writes a review in the Times with supplement on some uh, classical philological issue and says that Beyonce represents the classic better than Tacitus or some such thing you know completely unhinged. That is, the old race thing gets unhinged. You see it now with Biden, for example. Biden is uh, obviously the most, in terms of foreign policy, uh, Biden is the most experienced uh, person who's ever been the president with all his long years of experience. He was right on every issue, by the way, including the Afghan army, which he denounced as a fraud from 1969 and wanted Obama not to invest in because he thought it was a fraud. So Biden, in this world, for example, has this moderate, mature, highly experienced president. Half the White House staff are unhinged. <laughs> you know, they are they are uh, walks. You know, who are extremists that will keep propounding extremist things. I so know, I know. This, it's it's yeah, it's distressing. There, for example, there's this thing now of having to point black people, black women, preferentially. When you look at their qualifications. They're almost painfully conventional. I mean, there's this uh, terribly alarming person he wants to put in the Supreme Court. Well, she went to Harvard Law School. She went to Harvard and Harvard Law School. Then she was <laughs> law firm. Yeah. And very conventional people get put up by the works as saying, look, look, we have won. And so in reality, they're not at all woke themselves. I mean, um, exemplary would be Kamala Harris, you know, one of those conservative people who has been a vice president of the United States <laughs> and so what we have is a lot of division, true division, a lot of confusion, and then we have the unhinged right. Right. The unhinged right who looks at Biden and doesn't see the the man who's so experienced in foreign affairs and the moderate, mature, balanced, serious person that there is there. They see some somebody who is the anti-Trump, you know, and they keep harping on the man's misfortunes, you know, this tragedy. I happen to have met Biden very soon after he lost his young children, all those, you know, half a century ago, whatever it was, and uh, 
He's been unfortunate. He has an unfortunate son. And out of this, they tried to make national politics, you know. So, in other words, mass multiplied cohesion, very little cohesion. Fortunately, there's a lot of ruin left in the big empire. <laughs> yes. A lot of, look, you're British, I, you know, and the British empire has been declining. The British empire has been declining for a century. I mean, really, uh, more than a century. And there's still British Empire. When you want to do some military operation, I'm still quite active in this realm. You suddenly discovered that you need something and the British own the island. You know, if you want to be operating in South, I'm, I'm actually uh, operating in Polynesia at the present moment because mm -hmm. I do my security work and mm -hmm. this is to do with the repression of illegal fishing. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the French have a lot of Polynesia. It belongs to the French Republic. But Pitcairn is British, and Pitcairn is the Gambia Islands, which happen to be on the way to Antarctica, a very critical fishing thing. The British still have all these possessions. They still have armed forces capable of fighting anywhere, in any climate. And they still have this sort of superstructure. Yes. What do you think of Biden? Do you, are you well, happy he's president? You. Are you, do you think that he's... Sorry? Did you, are you happy that he's president? Among, if, if you have to choose between the Democratic candidates that were offered to us, to say happy would be an understatement. <laughs> I was ecstatic that you didn't get the, there was this. No, I know. Trust me, I know. Policy for everything. There was the other person who being the mayor of a small town and so on. And finally, there was Biden. So I was ecstatic. And I've been confirmed in a number of things. Our most important foreign affairs foreign policy questions, which is China, uh, Biden looked it over, perfect continuity, perfect continuity of policy in regard to China in every respect, large, medium, and small, everything, complete continuity because it was the right policy. In regard to, to Russia, I think that, that Biden is performing much better than his staff. I think the people who evacuated the U.S. Embassy in Kiev or half evacuated the U.S. Embassy were directly playing to put his intimidation campaign, creating panic, okay? And, and I think, you know, Biden is better than his administration. And I certainly hope that he will change personnel to put people who reflect his own expertise, his own value and so on. So he was right I'm to keep the- I'm not agitated by anything Biden has done. I, I supported strongly a lot of things Trump did, and I support Biden. I would not have supported a lot of other people. No. But Biden, unfortunately, until November, will not be free to be Biden because until November, when the Republicans, I'm told by experts, will win the House and the Senate, at that point, he will not be under pressure from these extremists and loudmouths and radicals and these people. And he will move, I think, to change the staff, the White House. So, in fact, a Biden from next year onwards, you think could be could be really good. He could be the kind of Sorry? a Biden, yeah, a, a Republican House and Senate, and Biden as president, if he maintains his vitality as he appears to be doing, will be a very good, very good thing. And with the Republican House and Senate, a, a person like Kamala Harris will not be barracked and attacked and betrayed by these wokes that gathered around this person. 
Right. And Biden would be able have more freedom to be himself, you think, with with a, with a less. Yes, to be himself, to be Biden. Correct. And he was right to get out of Afghanistan the way he did. 100% correct. Except this is where you're right. Afghanistan raises the largest unresolved problem of the American national security state. American soldiers are competent. Generals can be fools like Petraeus and Mattis, who perpetrated the Afghan army fraud that Biden had denounced back in the beginning. And anybody who knew anything about armies in Afghanistan agreed with Biden, not them. The American military are competent. If there's a fellow de- described as a as a tank gun fitter, class B, he knows how to fit the tank gun and realign it, okay? Our diplomats, in my view, are very competent. And I don't mean some famous ambassador, extraordinaire like Pickering, and, you know. I'm talking about the fact that, that, and it happens because I still work around the world, you call the duty officer in a minor embassy like Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and that person who answers will be committed to his job. He'll be there, he'll be available, he will be competent. So we have good military and we have good things. However, without any inside information, and I do have a lot of inside information, without it, you can demonstrate that American intelligence doesn't work. There are 17, I think 18 different agencies. They're united in a couple of basic axioms. One of them is don't learn foreign languages, it's too hard. That definitely involves the CIA. Definitely involves, includes the CIA. CIA has uh, CIA stations in uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. None of them do the people speak Turkmen, Kazakh, and all that stuff. When you upbraid them on that point, they tell you, but everybody speaks Russian, which is not true. But then you say, yeah, you're kind of fact, I don't speak Russian. In other words, they don't speak Russian, but the alibi for not even trying to learn languages is that they speak Russian, okay? The fellow who was in charge of, a Scheuer, Scheuer was in that, charge of the Bin Laden unit for years, who obviously failed completely to do his job, which is to intercept Bin Laden before he intercepted us, he did not speak Arabic. I asked him, how can you do your work? He says, oh, I get the translations from FIBIS, the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, which after a number of, with delays, translates sometimes well, sometimes poorly. And who was the target? Osama bin Laden, whose principal instrument was his command of classical Arabic, which was an elegant, fluid song. I understand enough Arabic to see what a wonderful way he spoke. When politicians in the Arab world switch to classical from the local dialect, Masri, whatever, they put on a kind of artificial voice, which is absurd. He spoke it very naturally. So language is crucial. So the CIA appoints a guy for the Bin Laden unit who doesn't know Arabic, doesn't try to learn Arabic, and is not forced to learn Arabic. Even though, you know, the Nokia company sends people to Egypt, if after six months they don't speak mastery, they fire them, lack of commitment. His deputy was a lady who also did not no, Arabic didn't try to learn anything. They were there for years. They didn't try to learn Arabic. They didn't try. Okay, this is the CIA. No languages, no history, no knowledge, just... So what happens with the CIA stations is they talk to language all the time. Language so the people won't forget them. In language, they talk to each other. 
When you ask about land, now I have I'm confronted successive CIA directors with this simple point. Your competitors, they have to learn two languages very well. If not, they get fired. And you don't. Why not? But most of them say the, something else. They say, you're right, you're right. We must do it. We must do it. We are going to do it. We will do it. The last one, Brennan, who wrote this awful book, uh, the last one, Brennan, the one, he also told me that. Of course, we must. It's very important. They do nothing about it because it's different. The other thing is that the, the so-called clandestine service people, they refuse to serve out of embassies in countries that are either dangerous or unpleasant or extreme or the weather is bad or whatever it is. They work out of embassies and they use all kinds of childish schemes like wooden sagomas in cars to meet themselves. That doesn't work for the Chinese. Everyone, every foolish person who signed up with the agency to work as an as a, as an asset as an asset you know a, a, an agent of some sort has been caught and killed because the CIA are incompetent. We have competent military, we have competent diplomats, we have incompetent intelligence people. For example, when Biden was saying that the Afghan army is a fraud, the intelligence community failed to provide information for which you need to walk in the streets of Kabul and hear people making fun of the fact that so-and-so paid a little more, so instead of entering as a soldier, he entered as an officer, equally unprepared, right? No such reporting, no situational awareness. There is no situational awareness. Well, I'm not talking about the you know, stealing the, the secret war plans. I'm talking about situational awareness. Right. Edward, this has been an absolute delight listening to you, telling us so much. At one point, you mentioned that your memory forgot something. I am in awe of that brain of yours. No, no, I completely forgot the date. Yeah, but you remember the God knows what you remember. Day of Nixon in Beijing. I know. I was but, in '76. I should have remembered. But old age deprives you of memory. Uh, it, well, it doesn't seem to deprive you of much memory. You are incredibly, well, incredibly yeah. alert. How old are you? You're like 81, maybe? Is that? No, 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 no. Come on, don't attack me. I'm 79. <laughs> I'm, 79. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And by the way, I was operating a small boat in Polynesia a week ago. Yes, so I'm I know. I'm able to do those things, but it is a simple fact of life that, that you know, I, I could not remember Nixon in at the crucial day. <laughs> right. Well, look, I can't important. remember what I had lunch for dinner yesterday, and I'm oh, come on, 20 come on. years don't on you. Well, Edward, I'm so grateful Great. for you spending I'm this glad. time. Not at all. A great pleasure. And, and, and uh, uh, I'm happy to see you happy, prosperous, and very young. Yes. <laughs> Goodbye. You're the best. Goodbye, Edward. Thank you so Bye-bye. much. We'll let you know when we broadcast this. Thank you. And for all of you out there listening to Edward Lutvak, thank you for listening. What, an, what a delight. Um, and I learned a lot. I really did. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>